So this evening is December 29, 2010. When we worship in here, I am struck with the thought that on December 31st, 2000, I guess actually 1999, December 31st, 1999, I was worshiping with my friends. Everybody was worried about Y2K. <laughs> Seen a lot of fads come and go. But what you may not know about my life in December of 1999 is that I was absolutely certain right now, this day, I'll be a full-time ministry and never look back. For 11 years later, and what got birthed in my heart that day, actually long before that, but what I was sure I was ready for that day, he has decided I'm ready for this day. Have you ever been in a situation where the king of the universe required your hope to be deferred? <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation <clears throat> where you had a different estimation of what needed to be done than Jesus had for you? And this was true, and you knew it was true, because in every direction that you turned, he slammed doors in your face. If you're like me, you may have spent some time angry and confused. You may have spent some time sure that if you just persevered and worked harder, everything would work out quickly. Sometimes the kingdom is anything but quickly. It's an important lesson to learn, because we live in a society that is completely based upon getting what you want the way you want it right now. And this is true even of our godly desires, right? If a man is called to ministry, he goes on a path of success. His ministry path will lead him to the right university, which will lead him to the right contacts, which will lead him to the right church planting or taking over the right church, which leads him to success, except that it may never have been the path that God called him to. As I began to contemplate how I wanted to close this year, I thought of one of the most powerful, impacting messages that hit my life this year. And I preached it on Wednesday night to a handful of people, but it really came alive to me in Mexico uh, when I was asked to speak off the cuff. And because of that, I wanted to share it with you. It comes from 2 Kings 16. In the 27th year, nope, 2 Kings 16, and 1 Kings. 2 Kings 16, start 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramallah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. So if he's 20 when he starts, and he reigns for 16 years. How old is he when he finishes? 36. Just like my honey, he'll be 36 tomorrow. Woo! 20 to 36. I'm a couple days short of 36 myself. I'm not quite as old as Jennifer. <laughs> Come on, stand up. Jen, would you stand up? 
Cody is 20. Jennifer is 36. From one, <laughs> from one person's perspective, that might seem like an eternity. It's probably hard for Cody to imagine what it is at 36. Jen, how hard is it for you to remember what it was like at 20? Not at all. Not at all. Seems like yesterday, doesn't it? So 36 may never come when you're 20. But when you're 36, looking back towards 20, it was yesterday. I can sit down. My point here is this man's life is about to be summed up. The next couple verses are going to say something about his life that defines how he goes down in the annals of the book of the kings of Judah. The heavens are going to record what they have to say, the commentary about this man's life, and his reign will be based on the time period between Cody and Jennifer. It seemed like an eternity when it started, like it would never end, but towards the end of it, at 36, looking back, it must have felt like the blink of an eye. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. When our king gives commentary on this man's life, when our king writes down in the eternal word for you to be warned with for all the ages, a commentary, a summary of this man's life, it could be summed up in one phrase. He did or he did not do what was right in God's eyes. There is no commentary about what he believed. There is no commentary about what his struggles were. There simply is the summation of his life. He did or did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. When you're 20 and you're looking forward at your life, it'll never, never quite get there. I mean, 10 years, are you kidding me? Do you know how long 10 years is? Until 10 years goes by, and then you're like, Ten years went by? Are you kidding? It seemed like yesterday too was born. I heard that always. I heard it over and over and over. The problem is, if you have no gray hair, it's hard to experience. I mean, you haven't had that experience, it's hard to understand it. Everybody will tell you your life will fly by, but you haven't had any of it fly by. In fact, all you've ever had is anticipation of one day you'll be an adult. Having been there for just a little while now, I want you to know that looking back at the last 16 years of my own life, the same standard of thoughts either did or did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It's not whether I said, Lord, Lord. It's not whether I cast out demons. It's not whether or not I healed the sick or raised the dead. It's I either did what was right in His eyes or I didn't. That's an amazing principle. <coughs> Your fruit is not simply judged because it's a strawberry or it's a banana. It's judged on whether or not you are supposed to produce strawberries or bananas. We need to be very careful that we have not bought into a lie. This is any good thing is the right thing for us to do. Our God does not have a perfect will for you and a permissive will. This is a lie from the pit of hell. Our God is not duplicitous. Our God has a will for you. Period. Our job is to find out what pleases the Lord and live a life that is worthy of the call that is on it. This idea of perfect and permissive will, this idea of a duplicitous nature of God has allowed us to say, I know God called me right here. Oh, Lord, it's hard. Oh, Jesus, it's hard. I was praying. It's okay. Oh, Jesus, it's hard. 
I think he's called me over here. I mean, because I can do his will here as well as there. God's everywhere. I can do his will will anywhere. Or maybe nowhere. Who really knows? Your life will be summed up in a sentence. It will be summed up in a sentence that says that it was about his will or it was not about his will. Isn't that a powerful thing? Have you ever had to stand before a judge? Anybody in here? Some of you are dying. <laughs> I won't really raise my hand. I'll just kind of, I mean, everybody doesn't need to know that. I've had to stand right before that judge, and I was offered two things. How do you plead? Guilty or innocent? And what you want to do is plead guilty with an explanation, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what you want to do is say, oh, it's true that I broke the law, but this is why I am the exception to the rule. Maybe a stunning, stark realization is there is no exception to it. You either did or did not do what God's will was for you. Say, brother, you're up there preaching legalism. Where's the grace? We have slid all over grace to the point that we've made it a disgrace. I think the biggest challenge that our church will face going forward, (coughs) you know, when you're a, a scraggly group of people that are in the living room, Everybody knows that you're weird anyway. They know that you're on the fringe. You're, you're some kind of strange radical either to be looked down upon or to be admired for your boldness. When you graduate to a garage, it's really not much different. It is almost esoteric in its, in its trappings. I mean, those people must have something special to go worship in a garage. Or those people are crazy. They worship in a garage. Then somewhere along the way, you're in a storefront type church like this one. And... To some, that's a measure of respectability. Oh, maybe something good could be happening there. And others, it's still like, are you kidding? Our building is $2.7 million, and that's just what we spent on it this month. You know? But as God's work becomes more established, as it becomes more palatable to the people around us with surfacey appearances, there is a temptation that will come. I know this because I've watched it and I've seen few do well with it. It's amazing how godly, how powerful, how bold and daring and risky faith can be when you have nothing else. But as you begin to accumulate, as you begin to become more comfortable, it has a way of waning. It has a way of becoming more respectable, less daring, less passionate, and less powerful. I want to stand before you publicly and tell you I would absolutely, not a figure of speech, rather you shoot me in the head right now than have that be the commentary of my life. And I am smart enough to know, after watching all of the pastors that have gone before us, it is an enormous temptation. There is something in us that craves the ridiculous picture that is the pastor in his three-piece suit sitting in a library behind a presidential desk. Never mind that Jesus would not have been caught in that situation. Because it is what our society has told us is success. I want you to take a moment and think about what success is. I would argue that success is Devin worshiping the king without a vision. I would argue that success seeing a couple come in trouble and leave full of power. I would argue that success can be found in the genuine, real impact 
that Jesus is having on people's lives that you're in touch with. And how do you measure that with a multimedia campaign? How do you sum something like that up? As we move forward in Kings, look at verse 3. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. You have to understand a civil war has taken place. The kings of Judah had a Davidic right to the throne. You remember that when Jesus came, they said, Hosanna! Hosanna, son of David! Hosanna, son of David! Save us! Save us now! Why son of David? The Davidic line had been given the authority from God to rule Israel. But when the Davidic line got off course during a man's life named Rehoboam, our God said to a man named Jeroboam, son of Nebat, if you serve me wholeheartedly, I will give you a dynasty just like David's. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, goes down in history as one of the more wicked kings to ever rule because although God gave him everything, he did nothing that God told him to do. I mention this because Ahaz is part of the Davidic dynasty. By birth, by God calling, by the structuring and leading of the Holy Spirit, this man is supposed to have what it takes to rule Israel. And who is he imitating? He is imitating people that their ministry was born out of a rebellion to God. They wanted what they wanted, the way they wanted it, and they wanted it right now. Has it ever been hard for you to wait on God's plan for your life? I know people that wanted kids so badly it almost drove them crazy. I know people that got children and it did drive them crazy. <laughs> know people that wanted a calling for their spouse that was never their spouse's calling to the point that it nearly wrecked their marriage. We are so used to a genie type relationship with God. Three wishes or demands and God will do because I followed the formula. Ahaz is this kind of man. He is imitating the kings of Israel. He even sacrificed his son in the fire. We would never do that. Never. Except that we might say, for the sake of providing for my family, for the sake of ministry, I really cannot spend much time with Jimmy or Johnny today. And today becomes this week. And this week becomes this month. And we're doing it all for Jesus, you know? Except there's so much selfish ambition in it that we have found every evil practice and our children don't know us. And if they do know us, they don't like us. By the way, what do people say? That kid is the worst I've ever seen. He is a, whose kind of kid? Pastor's kid. They call him PK kids. Tell me we're not sacrificing our sons at the fire. When the stereotype for a pastor's kid is that he's a moral degenerate. Tell me we've not sacrificed our sons in the fire. 
telling you, never in this ministry do we want you to put anything above your first and primary responsibility, which is to raise godly offspring. Period. Now, a lot of people will use that as an excuse. Then their children become an excuse for their cowardice. We'll deal with that some other Sunday. What I want to affirm to you going into the new year is the most important thing you have is what God has already planted in your house. That's the most important thing you have. And it is not possible to go in the whole world if you're not already succeeding with your family. Now, you're looking at a man who has seen his family come and go many times. And who knows? May have some more of that. I'm not standing before you a hypocrite. My wife, my sons, the people that God has put in my house, even my spiritual sons, take precedence over every other thing. Because in the end, it does no good to go see people saved by the thousands in India people that you come home to have fallen away from God. We take care of what God put in front of us and when you prove faithful with it, you will have everything else. This is why all ministry flows from a home. So husbands, be good leaders. Wives, be good mothers. Show that even when you disagree with your husband, you can love him and be full of faith that God is big enough to work it out. Children, obey your parents. This is right in the Lord, and it is your first service, not to your parents, but to the Lord. Delegated authority is God's authority, period. It's an extension of Him. This is how I want to move forward in the new year. Listen to what else Ahaz did. Verse 7. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me. See, Ahaz was experiencing some problems. The kings of Israel that he had patterned his life after had now turned on him. And he was fighting with them. And he was fighting with other foreign powers. So he began to lean on worldly kingdoms and powers. He said, Tiglath, Pileser, I will serve you. I am your vassal. Again, how could this ever happen in a church? How could this ever happen among God's people? Isn't this exactly what happens when we have run to some worldly institution ten times and not run to the throne of God once? Let me put it in more real terms for you. You didn't have any problem going to get antibiotics twelve times, but you didn't anoint your children in your own house one time. It does me. Immediately, balancing thoughts come into your mind like, oh, well, God's given us this, this, and this. Yes, but what did He give you first? And where is your trust? I'm not saying surgeries are not needed. I'm not saying medicines are not needed. I'm asking you in your heart, who is your help? How many times has Visa, and how about this word, Master card in your salvation this year. In the church, what we have done is said our problems are too big for us. Give us a worldly business scheme. 
do this. Do this and make us financially sound so that we can endure and spread the gospel. <coughs> can you imagine if Jesus operated that way? How financially sound is it to promise to feed 5,000 people when you have nothing? How financially sound is it to spend all of your time traveling and meeting the needs of other people when you yourself don't have a place to lay your head? How financially sound is that? This man was willing to serve whoever took care of him. Is this what our relationship has come to with the king? I know it's not in here, but listen to this next sentence. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. <laughs> he took the things that God had destined for God. The things that God had put in His care to be used for God's kingdom. And He gave them to the world for favor. So the king of Assyria complies and he comes and saves Ahaz. But now who is Ahaz's Lord? Who is Ahaz beholden to? Who is the miracle provision of Ahaz? And what did Ahaz have to do to get that? Oh, not a lot. He just had to steal from the living God and pledge his life and service as a vassal to something that was not God. Friends, what do you think it is when we form church planting committees and with almanac-like precision we survey a neighborhood to see what they need to hear. And then we put a Chick-fil-A and a Starbucks inside so that they're comfortable. And we build a playland like Six Flags to make sure that the kids are happy. What do you think that is? When did the power of God stop being enough for the people of God? When was it not enough to see people get out of wheelchairs what we really want, gosh darn it, is a latte. <laughs> well, this pastor's doing a lot of coffee ministry. I've seen an awful lot of people born again in coffee shops. I'm certainly not. I met Gabriel Mays in a coffee shop. I'm certainly not against any of those things in and of themselves, but I'm asking you something. Is our heart drawn towards things for security? that are not based on the power of God and are based on worldly principles. This will be a temptation our entire life long. You know why? When you drive up and down the thousands of Christians on Church Road right here, it is the norm. And before it was Starbucks and Chick-fil-A inside of your sanctuaries, it was beautiful stained glass and the nicest organ and the best choir and the most handsome preacher with the best voice. This is not pleasing to the king of the universe. But what is pleasing to him is the opposite. The one that says, I don't have silver and gold. I do have the power of God. And what I have, I will freely give you. This is what we're shooting for. I am not against larger churches. I am against something that is called corporate subservience. Actually, I'm for corporate subservience and against the opposite. See, when a pastor exists, and he exists to serve the people, this is what God wants. 
when a church exists and a corporation forms around the church and it exists to serve the people, this is what God wants. It is a gift from God to the people just like the Levites in Israel. But when the people exist to sustain the church, or they exist to provide for the ministers, then what we have is something that is not of God. It is a worldly for-profit system. It is no longer not-for-profit. It is for-profit. Let me show you how subtle this can be. <coughs> if we just had ten more people, we could put Darren on staff. If we just had ten more people, we, we could put Mike on staff. Just ten more people. As opposed to, there's ten people here. We need to find somebody who can serve. Do you hear the subtle distinction? One is the people exist there to support the pastorate. The other is the pastorate exists to serve the people. No matter where life-changing ministries goes, whether in this building or another building, whether in a bigger building or a smaller building, our hope is to never get this wrong. Look at verse 10. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He's going to meet his Lord. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its, dis its construction. How many times have we seen a worldly business principle adopted by the church? How many times has the best-selling book at Walmart become the strategic plan for Christendom in the United States? How many times have we seen a worldly principle not based on the power of God become the latest fad in the church? Is it tempting? Sure, it's tempting. You know why? Nobody's doing it. I mean, and look, there's success. And what is success? Butts and seats. It's not based on the power of a changed life. It's based upon numbers. And why numbers? Because we're really in our heart a for-profit organization. Yeah. <laughs> we need to maximize our space and our profit by putting as many people in it as we can. Do you think this has the potential to hurt people who are really trying to find Jesus? Mm -hmm. Of course it does. I'm not, uh, well, the first time I preached this, I want to be very clear. I preached this about everyone else. As I began to dwell on the message that I preached because I was proud of it, I began to see all of the ways in which this is or could be me or you or any other church that started in purity and didn't finish that way. I think the fitting way to finish this year before our bonfire probably to talk about what we need to guard against and where we need to go. A detailed plan. Look at verse 12. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offerings and grain offerings and poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar. 
The bronze altar that stood before the Lord, He brought from the front of the temple from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord and put it on the north side of the new altar. When you lay this out and you map it all out, when you came into the temple, the first thing that you would normally see, the very first thing that a person would come into contact with when approaching God is the bloody atoning sacrifice on a bronze altar and bronze symbolized judgment. This meant that Dustin would be walking along with his lamb. As he was approaching God, the first thing that would happen is the lamb's throat would be cut. That blood would be thrown in his face. Then this object of value, of affection, object that he had probably cared for, would be burned up before the living God. Then he would move to a wash basin called a sea. And he would look for what his sin had caused the need to be done. He would stare into his own reflection of guilt and the water of God's Word would wash it away. Then he would progress towards the holy place where there was the fragrance of prayer and the bread of God's presence. And having been washed and cleaned, he could go partake. Well, now we have a new system. A system that puts an a altar from Damascus right out in front. A new altar. And listen to what Ahaz says about it. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar... He put a large new altar right out in front and said God's altar, God's power, and God's way is no longer the reason that people come here. Come here because we have a beautiful design. Come here because our altar is bigger than God's ever was. Come here because it's new and never seen before. The draw and the attraction for the people to come to the temple was no longer God's altar. It was an altar that had its origins in the world. Tell me I am not preaching about the American church and something that we are tempted to do every time. Look, if I had a phone book up here and I tore it in half, would you be impressed with that? If I ordered pizza for you while I tore them in half... If I bench pressed 300 pounds 20 times for you, would you be impressed with that? I want you to know I could do all of those things before I met Jesus. <coughs> and all that would have drawn you in any of those things was the flesh. And see, when the world is what's drawing them, then the world is all you're getting. And this is why our churches have had enormous crowds. But no change. I don't want any new programs. I don't want any new pretty things for people to come see. I love that our Christmas plays were humble. I love that our carpet was donated and came from a workout facility. We're going to baptize people again here Sunday. <clears throat> At this point, I could build any kind of baptismal I wanted. 
I like the horse draw. My pledge to you, and what I'm asking you to pledge to me, is that you'll never be interested in anything except God's true ultimate. This is not a democracy, and it's not a membership scenario. This is the people of God, called by God, doing it God's way. And I think the last service of the year, we ought to remind ourselves of that. No new schemes. Only the power of God. Notice the lie that this man bought into. On the large new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering and the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. By the way, all the offerings in the world offered in a way and on an altar that God did not ask. He won't receive it. So you tell me about all of the good that so-and-so is doing and all of the wonderful activities they have. And if it is based on the world, God doesn't receive it. But I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. The church has fallen into the deception that we can do things the way the world does and then seek God privately for guidance and He will be there and honor watch this deception creep into people's lives. I don't want it in mine. I don't want it in yours. And friends, we are susceptible to it. You know how I know we're susceptible to it? Don't tell me that all of the people that have sold out the gospel started with that intention. In fact, it starts something like this. You know, we have got such a powerful good word. We've got such an ability to impact people. If we could just get more people here, we could see more lives changed. <clears throat> well, what do you think we ought to do to do that? I don't know, man. Those seats are so uncomfortable. Maybe we could just do something about that. And you know, worship goes so wrong. Maybe we should do something about that. And you know, working in children's church is so hard. Why don't we just pay somebody to do that? And you know what? Why are we spending so much money in countries where people can't see it? Why don't we focus on our own community? You know, we could do some good things. Like, maybe we could build a basketball court for the local kids to come play with. All of them are good chairs. A bad thing? No. Is a basketball court for a community a bad thing? No. But where is your heart and why do we do the things that we do? I believe that the king of the universe is either born in his presence. It either comes off of his altar and has an element of sacrifice in it. Or it comes from a spirit of disobedience that has wrapped itself in a religious garment. I don't want it. I don't want any altars from Damascus. Do you want altars from Damascus? No. We cannot have both. We cannot have the power of God and the altar to Damascus. They cannot coexist together. One master will win. King Ahaz took away the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. He removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. He is rearranging God's prescribed order into His presence. 
He's making it something that is more palatable to the majority of the people. The Bible says these things must be done. These things must be done. You know, prophecy is in that list. Speaking in other tongues is in that list. Words of knowledge, healing is in that list. These things must be done for the edification of the body. The Bible says that. But, for the sake of the people, look what you guys, y'all do that in the home meetings here. Or I tell you what, we'll rent another building over there. We'll call it something else. This is not going on everywhere. Yes. I was born again in the era of the gym service. <laughs> Churches were starting gym services everywhere. They'd already built their altars to Ahaz and it wasn't working, so they were trying to squeeze God's altar in there somewhere. The problem is, is it was a sideshow. I sat in spirit-filled, powerful churches and watched men come to write down the designs of the altar and go back and try to implement them in their own scenarios. Mm -hmm. Our king will put up with no rivals. And his prescribed way is the only way. We will argue day and night over whether you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or do you baptize in the name of Jesus and we can divide the whole church and take up arms over it, but nobody stopped to ask the question, was the man born again? We're baptizing. Yeah. Yes, his altar has so overrun the church that I think it is the largest threat that we face. I think it has crept into the point where it stenches in our pores and we don't even know it. wanted to remind the church of what we're about. We're about seeing lives changed by the power of God. This is the measure of our success and the number of lives is irrelevant. The quality of lives is what is relevant. This maybe sums it all up. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord. <coughs> in deference to the king of Assyria. Deference is an interesting word. Man may claim to have reverence for the Lord, but if he is changing the things that God told him he must do out of deference for someone else, who is more important? Yeah. See, he said a true thing when he said, I am your vassal and I am your servant. At least he was honest about it. We claim to serve the Lord and try to do it in worldly ways. All for God's kingdom. He will have none of it. And friends, I don't know what happens to us. I believe that God is going to grow us in some ways. I believe that the disciples in this room will be making their own disciples and there will be captains in this room. I believe that. But no matter how that goes, the threat to us is not when we're a band of 30 mighty fighting men. The threat to us is when we look respectable in the world's eyes and are tempted to do it in the world's ways. This is where the threat comes. 
The threat comes when we're indistinguishable from every other mausoleum on this road. I don't ever want to lose the day where we are excited about baptizing our horse car. I don't ever want to lose the day where we're not <coughs> proud that the spiritual gifts move in our midst. And there will never be a time as long as we stand in the will of God where we will treat the baptism and the Holy Spirit as an elective or an add-on to be done in a side road somewhere. I don't care how big the crowds are. What is wrong? I want to close with you, but I want you to go to number 16 and tell you what I would like you to be looking to do. I've had a little hang-up here lately, if we're perfectly <coughs> honest. <coughs> the messages that I feel like God has given me have been serious messages. I've received some encouragement from people who love me. You know, Eric, you can be funny. <laughs> but I turned on the TV at 2 o'clock the other night because I couldn't sleep. And I heard a man stand. I think he's standing at an altar to Ahaz. And he said, you know, friends, I like to start my messages with something funny. <laughs> and then I listened. Not only had I heard the joke a thousand times before, but I listened. The message was 32 minutes long and contained exactly one scripture. He's preaching to the largest crowds in the United States. Whatever he is is between him and the Lord. But I want to tell you, what is highly valued among men is not so valued to the King of Kings. And what the King of Kings values is barely noticed among men. This would be a good year for us to return to center, operate in the power of God, to believe that these signs shall accompany those who believe, not who have the best church program not who have the most efficient or comfortable plans. But these signs shall accompany those who believe. I believe that it is no more likely that I raise the dead than Kizzy does. I believe that it is no more expected that Matthew worship the living God than John worship the living God. And I wish that all God's people were prophets. Because let's be honest. If you're on fire, you don't really care who puts you out. You just want somebody to care enough to go. We don't need to train our whole lives to do what should be natural to us the moment His Spirit entered us. We don't need to study our entire lives to do what should be natural to us the moment His Spirit entered us. How much more prepared could you be to go witness? How much more prepared could you be to go pray for the sick? How much more prepared could you be to do the work of the kingdom? Because in the end, your life is going to be summed up with a single phrase.
you did or did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that a sobering thought? As we close in number 16, I think you know that there was a rebellion. Nadab, Abihu, no, <coughs> sorry, Dathan, Abiram, Korah, a rebellion. It's a man named Maon who apparently repented, but you've heard that message before. And 250 leading men. What happened to them? Somebody speak it out loud. <laughs> they got swallowed up. Did Moses swallow them up? No. Who swallowed them up? The Lord, the Lord swallowed them up. That's the earth. The earth swallowed them alive. Look at verse 42. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned towards the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Before we read this next verse, do you know why the people are angry with Moses and Aaron? They're angry because the earth opened its mouth and swallowed men who were in rebellion to God. Moses didn't eat them. Aaron didn't either. God caused the supernatural power of His mighty hand for the earth to open up and swallow them. But who got blamed? Moses and Aaron. There will be a day when the rebellious spirit that is so contagious and is so rife and is building altars day has all over our land is being swallowed up. And the people who loved it will dislike those who spoke against it. Whatever happens to the broken religious system happens by God's hands, not ours. Our job is to stand where He has told us to stand. Our job is to refuse to participate I want you to notice that what starts with four men and ultimately only three men spread to 250 leaders. And then in the verses prior to the one that I read you, spread to the entire assembly. And they were mad with the leaders after they saw the supernatural hand of God. After, not before. After the earth swallowed them, they said Moses killed them. Participating in this prayer of Jabez type system may look like the right thing to do. But when the supernatural power of God begins to separate the greedy from the selfless, people will be shown for what they are. This is a word of warning. I want to tell you what our job is this year. It comes from this verse. Then Moses said to Aaron, by the way, the people are under a death sentence. God has said, I'm going to kill them. And He knocked them all down on their face. The people are all under a death sentence. Do you remember what it was like to be under a death sentence? However you got there, do you remember what it was like? Then Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense in it. 
That's prayer. Along with fire from the altar. You have to be familiar with the altar. You have to work at the altar. You have to know what it is to be in God's presence. To have His incense and fire from His altar. This is a prayer life and a powerful baptism in the Holy Ghost that is set on fire in the presence of God. And hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. Our king has not called us to understand these things so that we can look and watch the earth swallow everyone. Our king has not called us to know these things so that we can stand back and say, we're better than you. Our King has not given us these messages and illuminated this subject to us so that we can watch people perish under His wrath and say, we were right, you were wrong. That's the very thing that Pharisees were criticized for, by the way. He's given us this understanding and the hopes that we will see it for what it is, not stand back and celebrate it and run into the middle of it in the hopes to see people atone for it. And listen to what it requires. He stood between the living and the dead. And the plague stopped. I want to tell you it is not enough for us to know that there is an altar to Ahaz being built. It is not enough for us to know that people are sacrificing sons and daughters in that fire. It is not enough for us to know that there's compromise all around and stand back and lament it and say, I wish it wasn't so and it's all so bad and we're so right. None of that knowledge will benefit you at all if it is not matched with a desire to go plunge yourself into the middle of those who are under its plague. Stand in the middle of their assembly. Stand between the living and the dead to make atonement for them. You know what this may mean? It may mean that you're called into a pastor's office and you have to sit there and say, I have assessed your worship just like you asked me to. And I find nothing of worth in it. It's an altar to Ahaz. But you don't have to stay there. It may mean that in your workplace, Somebody pull you aside and say, you make me nervous because you talk about Jesus and I'm worried for you that you'll lose your job. And you can look at him and say, I'm ready to lose my life. I would rather be penniless and jobless than watch everyone go to hell. When exactly did you sell out? Hmm. We are learning these things for one reason. To go rescue souls. That's what it's supposed to be about. And we're fortunate. There are damned people that have been collected in buildings all around us. We even know where to find them. We speak the same language. We think we believe the same things. But our lives will be summed up by we either did or did not do His will. Not whether or not we thought the right things or spoke the same language. That's what I would like this next year to be about. I came in here without a thing prepared to preach. But I listened to your testimonies and I thought about what God was speaking to my heart. And you got it honestly. I hope you'll come to the bonfire but also bring something. It'll make you and them uncomfortable. You know why? They're going to speak in other tongues. 
We're going to dance. We're going to laugh and tell jokes. We're going to be regular men who are extraordinarily blessed by God. And they won't know what to do with us because they're used to spiritual people being spiritual people and worldly people being worldly people and they will find in us a unique mixture of the earthly and the divine. Something that only God Himself could build. This is what it means to encounter God's people. Not this ridiculous freak show that is going on all around us. Y'all stand your feet. Let's pray. I know it's hard to believe, but I was once in the fellowship of Christian athletes. <laughs> may surprise you to know that in a Christian school, <coughs> it was two or three A, whatever we were at the time, a bunch of students, in the fellowship of Christian athletes, I was a leader. And I was not born again, and I don't know of a single person in the <coughs> fellowship who was born again. But we were all easily able to unite under macho messages that were flesh exalted. And we certainly liked the pizza that we shared. Very strange when I got born again and got to go back to the group that I began calling the Fellowship of Cardinal Athletes. It was not long. We had nothing in common. We need to examine what it is we're calling Christ and make sure that we have not let someone pass themselves off as a bride. Book of Revelation is a great name for that person. I think that God has put people in this room that literally have the power to change this. How many of you believe that there will be, will be, an end time revival? A lot of heads are not. You believe that's biblical, right? How many of you believe we're in the end times? So when does the revival start? It starts when you start it. Yeah, how about that? Kids, you pray for us and we'll close. <laughs> See, you come stay at my house, look what happens. Yeah, I come over here for a week. You pray. Hey.